So Money episode 519, Cindy Whitehead, CEO of The Pink Ceiling. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It is January 9th, 2017, and we are very close to Inauguration Day. And after the election, I made a vow to continue to promote successful women on this show. Today is not going to be any different. Cindy Whitehead is here. She's a trailblazer for future female business owners. She actually went on to invent the very first FDA-approved, quote-unquote, female Viagra called Adyi. And after getting that approval, Cindy sold the company, sold the brand for $1 billion. And from there, she's launched an initiative called The Pink Ceiling. It's a strategy and investment firm that she launched last year dedicated to finding and funding innovations for women. And she's calling 2017 the year of the pinkubator, dedicating her all to promoting female startups, especially in the male-dominant STEM fields, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We talk about what it takes to raise money as a female founder, especially when presenting in front of a room full of men, as Cindy has done many times. She describes why it's important that female entrepreneurs get less cheerleading and more straight talk. And as crazy as it sounds, the sense of loss, loss that Cindy experienced after selling her company for that billion dollars. Here is Cindy Whitehead. Cindy Whitehead, welcome to So Money and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Uh, We are actually recording this prior to the new year, but (laughs) let's fast forward and pretend it's 2017. And I love that given, you know, your new mission with the pink ceiling, you really want to make 2017 the year of what you call the pink ubator. I do. Yeah. Helping female startups. Tell us a little about that initiative. Sure. So we basically invest in breakthroughs either for or by women. Um, We work alongside them to help women really get to the place that I did, take their idea all the way to market. So I'm thrilled with the Pinkubator. I've built now multiple companies in the research triangle in North Carolina. And this is a little bit of my give back, taking local either scientists or engineers and helping shepherd them through the process. One of the things you say we need more of is straight talk with women as opposed yes. to cheerleading. <laughs> you had this great Q&A in the New York Times recently and uh wanted to revisit that with you. It's an interesting time politically. I feel like we could use some more cheerleading given just what's been going around and the some of the headwinds that we f- that some women feel uh especially when they're, you know, in the workplace now and trying to build businesses. But you say we need more balance. Hmm. Well, let me tell you what I mean by that. So I love the moment that we're having in terms of women starting businesses at a clip of two X men. Um, all of those are positives. I think what I mean that can, can sometimes be missed is candor. And here's what I mean by that. I see a lot of young, bright women who come to me with ideas and they have all the moxie to start their own business, but nobody's giving them the feedback that that particular idea is not scalable or sustainable. 
And so what I try to do in the pink ceiling is we try to give really direct feedback to women who come to us with ideas. And we say, you've got all the chops to make it go find the better idea. And I think they need that because here's my fear is if we have a lot of women starting businesses and they're businesses that, you know, may work well in a small community, but really don't have the ability to scale. I'll give you an example. Women who are, you know, selling jewelry inside of their sorority system. And they think about how do I make this into a business once I get out of college? But the truth is, it's probably never going to grow to scale. I think we've got to tell them that because what I don't want them to do is start that have that fail, and somehow that reinforced this narrative that women don't have what it takes to be entrepreneurs. They have everything it takes. Let's talk about your own personal narrative. This initiative, Pink Ceiling, was really born out of your own journey of taking Sprout Pharmaceuticals from ideation to sale, a billion dollars. Yes. (laughs) You had your own failures though along the way. So tell us, tell us about that kind of go behind the scenes and share kind of the wins and the losses behind that. Well, look, that was a, um, a difficult, (laughs) difficult process to say the least. It's certainly a storied one, um, that was covered often in the press, but I'll tell you why I did it. So I built a business before this. Few people know I built a business before this with a male sexual health drug. And I'd finally gotten out of that painful stage of startup. We were making money. We were doing well. We were growing month over month. But I was watching the science emerge around women's sexuality. And what I saw is company after company walking away. And it just didn't make sense. The science was spectacular. The problem was a narrative in society that really didn't accept the biological basis of sexuality for women. So I made the hard decision to sell the other business um, at, at a moment where we were really in the easy phase, if you will. And I turned around to all my shareholders and said, I'm going to need money back from you to take this on. So I took on getting the first ever drug approved for sexual desire in women. And here's why I did it. There were 26 FDA approved drugs for some form of male sexual dysfunction and not a single one for women. Not a single one until, until you know, last year made no sense to me. Um, but it was not without some pain getting there because a lot of what we had to do was break down both the curiosity and the controversy that surrounds sexuality. We all have an opinion when it comes to sex. So it had to really get people to turn to the science, understand the science, and ultimately we got to approval and sale. So this begs the question, is, is it because we're just li- still living in a patriarchy that we don't accept that women deserve the the same kind of health attention when it comes to sexuality and sexual desire than men? What is that all about? I have an unequivocal yes. <laughs> so okay. what that's all about <laughs> is that we pervasively in women's health, particularly when it comes to sex, where I've spent a lot of my years in my career, we basically chalk things up to psychology. We tell women it's all in their head over and over again. Um, and we hide behind this mantra of women are complicated. You know what? Sex is complicated. And that's if you're a guy or a girl. Um, it is equally complicated. But that, is an, that word alone, complicated, is a great excuse to hold up progress. And certainly in this category it was. And I can tell you it does in other women's health categories as well. Once it received FDA approval, you were able to sell it, turn it around literally like the next day for a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, that was quite that was quite a week of my life. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, that was building. So we had a so the FDA has a mechanism where they can assemble a group of external scientific experts. 
and they can review all of the data and basically make their recommendation to the FDA. And this happens before the, the FDA takes it under advisement and they may or may not approve the drug. We had that happen with our drug and they overwhelmingly voted to approve the drug. So big companies took notice. They thought, oh my goodness, they are going to get approved. And at that moment in time, a number of different companies came courting. So we were in discussions leading up to um, a transaction upon ultimate approval of the drug. But what happened later was not really what you expected, right? After the sale. No, not at all. Yes. (laughs) Well, look, I think I will tell you, having uh, built and sold two companies, founder satisfaction can be elusive. And I think it's both exhilarating and excruciating to sell a company because it is in every sense of the word, your baby. You bet you have a vision for it. You see it grow up in this world and you ultimately make hard decisions that, you know what, it would be better in somebody else's hands. In our case, you know, Addy deserved a global footprint. My vision for this drug is always that it would be broadly, affordably accessible to women. Women, not only in the U.S. would have it, but in Brazil and Japan and, you know, across the globe. And so it made sense to partner, but your partner doesn't always have the same vision as you do. What was your takeaway from all of that? I mean, and how are you now lending this advice to your protégés? You know, my takeaway is actually to tell them your job as a CEO is to deliver value. And I think, you know, looking back, do I wish every, I wake up every day, I think about Addy. It will be part of me Mm. forever. Um, But I will tell you that it also does deserve a global footprint and, and needed to be in the hands of a bigger player. So I think that, look, the optimist in me, I, I sold it to a particular company, Valiant, who had their own, um, you know, difficult period of time. And it was the last thing in. So it didn't get a lot of attention. The optimist in me says they will still launch this drug. They said they will publicly. Um, so I'm looking forward to that day. I think my advice to it doesn't change much in terms of talking to other founders of companies that you have to also know when it's time to let go. What happens when you make a billion dollars? I've never experienced that. <laughs> Many of us will never experience that. So indulge us. You wake up the next day and you're exactly the same person. <laughs> Are you really <laughs> though? About it. Oh, yes. That's the thing. I think I disappoint people all the time who ask me the questions. They say, what did you buy? I said, oh, I bought a pair of pink shoes. They go, that's it? Um, you know, where did you go on vacation? I didn't take a vacation. Um, so it's just very funny. I think actually you wake up the next day. And the truth is, this is going to sound ridiculous, but there's almost a sense of loss. And, you know, I woke up the next day having gotten the, you know, the brass ring, if you will, and yet had lost, uh, had lost in some way my baby. Um, so it's a, it's, fu- it's a funny period. I can't complain though. Look, the, the, you get out of that, you, you sort of go through that process of how do you step away? How do you look forward? What's next? And for me, it was the pink feeling, which is in many ways, I think, you know, the give back. You sound so far to have a pretty strong sense of, you know, your financial values. Uh, but maybe it wasn't always this way. Before we got on the call, you said you have kind of a weird relationship with money. So let's, I do. let's explore that a little bit. <laughs> which, you, you, which you've just seen, as I've said, like, what happens when you get a billion dollars? Oh, not much. Well, <laughs> so that's, that's my pretty... weird relationship with money is sort of the practicality of it all. Well, it sounds 
I mean, I would have been more concerned if you were like, I went and bought an island, you know, (laughs) that that comes with its own bag of drama. But uh, take us down memory lane a little bit. I know you had a very um, interesting upbringing. You called it nomadic Mm -hmm. in the New York Times piece. Your father worked for, uh, I believe it was the State Department. Yes, correct. Yes. I moved every year of my life from the fourth grade through graduating high school. So I was nomadic, to to say the least. I moved quite a bit. Um, but, you know, in terms of childhood, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I have a family that is entirely self-made. Um, they believe you've got to go out, you've got to earn it. And, you know, if I think back even to when I was a little girl, um, and it's I, at Christmas time, you know, I have two big brothers. We would all get gifts and, you know, love from our Christmas list. What did we get? What didn't we get? And my dad had a practice where we would have to give one of them away. And, you know, even when you're little, you're little and you've got this bright, shiny new object that you wanted, it was on your list. And to decide what you're going to part with was such a great lesson to me in that you may want it, but you don't necessarily need it. Mm -hmm. And somebody may need it more than you do. And I think that really shaped a lot of my relationship with money. What did your parents teach you the most about money through their own habits and the way that they conducted themselves? Because I think that a lot of times we sort of learn through osmosis or we just learn through being sure. in the environment. It's not that our parents sat us down and said things or taught us things, but we just learn from watching. Yeah, it was very much an earn it household. You know, I can remember when I was little, I had a good friend. Um, we always sort of competed in school in terms of, you know, getting the, the best grade on the, on the test. And her parents would give her money um, every time she got an A. And I can remember going home and trying to negotiate with my parents, you know, that I wanted money for every A I got. And they basically said, no, that's our expectation of you. And and what you get from that achievement is the pride of having done it. So, you know, they did teach me in many ways, um, you know, how you have to earn it and sort of nothing comes easy. Um, Everything's going to require hard work. I can only imagine the experiences you had moving around so much. I moved around a little bit and in each experience, I encountered different types of young people from different economic backgrounds, Mm -hmm. cultures, Mm -hmm. such a learning experience. Like what kinds of economic values or financial perspectives did you get from your, from moving around and meeting so many different types of people? Oh, it was wonderful. So one of the most unique places I lived is the Fiji Islands. When I was a little girl, I went to a Fijian school. And look, that is very much an island culture. Um, People have, you know, little means. And I think that was a good lesson for me in sort of the luxury, if you will, of being an American, what you have, the privilege that's associated with that. I also spent time in, you know, overseas schools with a lot of diplomats kids who came from wealthy backgrounds. And so it was a, it was always good observationally to see, you know, how you treat money if you have none or if you have a lot. Um, I'm sure that shaped it. And again, I think it goes back to, uh, you know, you, you may want it, but you don't necessarily need it. And that was good, good lesson to learn at a young age. Would you say that's now your philosophy, your overarching mantra? I, I probably am very practical about buying decisions. Look, there, no question, I have some frivolous uh, purchases to be sure. But in general, I would say I'm pretty um, practical about buying things and not extravagant. But then when it comes to business, would you say you're still practical or that you really oh, no. do flirt with risk? So, Oh, for sure. So I'll tell you, I have a completely different relationship with money professionally and personally. 
and probably, you know, from a professional standpoint, I, that's what I do. I take big risks, um, make big bets, mostly on myself thus far. Um, I think that's always a good bet to make. And, um, but personally, I think that probably shapes with the fact that I'm pretty conservative with money personally. When you were in the boardrooms asking for funding, typically in, in front of a room full of men as a woman, how did that feel? And how did you make sure that you were communicating effectively? So I think what I have always recognized is that you will be underestimated. And I've embrace that underestimation and turned around and killed them with confidence. And I think that's what we need to do. I think a realistic perspective, look, I don't look like a pharmaceutical CEO. I don't fit the mold in any way, shape or form, um, age, um, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm in there talking about sex. Holy cow. Yeah. So I, I knew walking in and I think my, I sort of enjoyed it. I enjoyed that they weren't going to think that I would be able to just come back, come back, come back. And I would start most of my presentations with the science just to cut through um, a lot of the giggles and, and everything else that came when it, that comes when you talk about sex as a, as a matter of uh, course. Right. Because it can be squeamish, uncomfortable. Sure. Everyone's got a different you know, upbringing, background, perspective on the topic. So you neutralized it by really just going forward with the, with the facts. Yes, absolutely. A black and white image will, will set the stage, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we're all looking at the same picture, we've got to start the conversation at the same place. Right. All right. What's your take on 2017 in terms of the challenges that we may have that were different from 2016 when it comes to females in the workplace and entrepreneurship? Got to ask that question. Look, I'm, I, I'm going to go back to um, the optimism and the optimist in me of that. At this point, the train has left the station. We're having a conversation and look for all of the downside, if you will, of the talk in the last election. Um, the, the hopeful part of me says that it's brought issues to light and we're having to face them around gender inequality. So my hope is the train has left the station and it's going right through 2017. What is your advice for someone listening who really wants to take on entrepreneurship in a big way? They're working at a job or they're staying at home right now with their kids or they want to you know, emerge as an entrepreneur soon this year. Where do they start? I think they start with a mindset and the mindset is you want to own it. And for me, that is a personal mantra. Owning it has been fundamental. It's the path to freedom. It's the path to freedom financially, and I think, frankly, creatively, um, it's the path. It's why I became an entrepreneur that, you know, not only was I betting on myself uh, for ultimate return, but I also was wanting to do it on my own terms and build cultures that were cultures I thought that created ownership among others. Um, that's probably one of the best things of building businesses is just letting everybody else have skin in the game and watching how that can be transferred transformational to them. So I really do think that the first piece of it is to the mindset of, I want to own it. And what are you so deeply passionate about? Look, I love seeing women in science and technology. Um, there's far too great a disparity there of women who go into that field. But look, if that's not what you want to do, I think you have something that is a particular passion. If you're not passionate about it to the nth degree, it's not your calling. Passion is important, but also being practical and having the sure. money and the, the runway. So 
advice on that front, how to really realistically get it off the ground. Passion's important. Get that. It needs to, it's the fuel, but, um, you need to also maintain and sustain that passion with real things, resources, yep. money. Sure. So I, from a practical standpoint, you're going to have to bootstrap it. I'll call it, I like to call it stiletto strapping it for women. Um, you have to bet on your own idea, but you're going to have to have saved to start it because nobody's going to bet on you unless you're betting on it yourself. So you're going to have to have some skin in it. And then I think it is a matter of, as an entrepreneur, you have better perfect the story of your vision and you need to tell it to everyone you meet. And from, in my case in particular, I didn't raise money traditionally. So I didn't go out to venture capital and it was very unusually, particularly in pharmaceuticals, which is highly capital intensive, but I wanted people socially aligned. So I found my way, you know, and it really was one person told the friend who told the friend who told the friend. And over the time I grew a great network of private angel investors across the country who were mission aligned as well as, you know, they obviously they're investing in you for a return, uh, but they've got to care about what you're doing socially. Uh, the practical, there's so many resources now for women. So I'll step back. There are accelerators like the circular board in Houston. That's a great one, a good place to start. Get into one of these programs that will take you through. It's virtual. You can do it from anywhere. Um, and whether you're at an idea stage or you've, you know, you've raised some seed money, you're about to go to your next raise, they can help you through that process. There's so many beyond the pink ceiling and what we're doing. You know, there's a lot of groups now explicitly looking at helping female founders find those resources. And in a small way too, we can all be resources for each other. I, uh, I may not be running the pink ceiling or a big investment fund for female entrepreneurs, but I, in my own way, I'm going to be more devoted to being a mentor, being yeah. a resource yeah. and creating transparency too. That's so important because we don't know walking into a boardroom what to expect, but hearing you talk about it will at least give us that level of preparation. We don't know how much to ask for. We don't know how much to value ourselves, our companies, but the more we share that. And so far, I think we're doing a good job of it, but it's not something that we have readily released in the past. Mm-hmm. I think there is, isn't there a great feeling right now that there's a conversation around, you know, really your responsibility in mentoring others. And look, from my professional career and the product that I brought to market, I had a front row seat to women advocating for themselves and each other and the power in that. And I think, you know, now trying to apply that as well, I completely agree. You can be a mentor, whatever stage you're at, to someone else to your left and your right. And I think that's one of our responsibilities as women to each other is to, to help each other out. Did you always know you wanted to be a boss, run your own company? <laughs> um, that's funny. Uh, you know, when I was little, I probably always, my, my play games were that I had companies. Um, I'm convinced <laughs> that so my big brothers could get me to uh, wait on them hand and foot. Like I used to have a Cindy's kitchen and I would deliver things to them from the uh, refrigerator, but I'm pretty sure they were taking advantage of me then. But yeah, I think I always, I've, let me tell you what I have always had. I've always had a love of businesses, small businesses, why they work, the experience you have. Um, I really think I've always loved that through my entire life. And that probably led me to wanting to do it on my own and make my own mark. Cause I was in cultures, you know, in big companies, I started in a big pharmaceutical company. Um, they try to homogenize everybody. 
Mm-hmm. That you're so it's one way um, and they, I think, beat out that individuality that really makes, you know, the truly great companies great. Pharmaceutical companies get such a bad rap and, and you know, the headlines are devastating with rising prices. Sure. Is there a movement against this or we're just going to is just sort of like the norm and it's going to happen more and more? No, look, I, I, um, I laugh. I used to say that tobacco or that pharmaceutical companies were one rung up the ladder from tobacco companies. At this point, I think they're on the same. It's been an interesting industry to be a leader in because reputationally, really, I think many of the big companies are our own worst enemy. The truth is with with pharmaceuticals, I've loved it because of what it can do for people. I don't necessarily love how the industry gets it done. And what's happened, I think, over time is almost a disconnect in pharma from the patients. And that's what you're there for. So it's really what inspired me to go smaller, smaller, smaller until I started my own because I thought that's where the real innovation was, the real um, sort of connection, if you will, to the mission of pharma, which is to serve patient needs. Mm -hmm. Everybody hates, I will say, you know, everybody hates pharma um, sort of in the light of day reading the headlines, but in the, you know, dark of night, if your child wakes up with a raging fever, you don't hate pharma. So there is a place for it. I would agree that the industry needs to do a better job um, in terms of reconnecting to the patient. You're such a role model for so many individuals, Cindy, myself, other uh, entrepreneurs, male, female. Who do you look up to? Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you who I look up to. I look up to startup. I look up to the true startup person. Whoever that may be, guy, girl, my inspiration has always been the people I'm around. So I'm, I've never had what you would think of as kind of a conventional mentor, somebody higher in the company who, you know, I looked up to. And I think it's made me passionate in telling others, look to your left and your right. Your mentors are all around you. Um, you can learn, I think, from everybody. So my, my, honestly, my mentors today are the women who walk in and pitch me. They, their energy, um, their, their passion and what they're doing, the problems they're trying to solve. Um, that's really my energy source. Yeah. Continued source of inspiration. Okay. Before we go, before I let you go, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. This is where I start okay. a sentence and you finish <laughs> it. Here we go. Okay. Well, you've already won a billion dollars. So if you want another billion dollars, not that you won it, you earned it so fiercely. First thing I would do if I want a billion dollars and this time you're not allowed to just let it sit in the bank. Oh, so the first thing I would do is invest in more female founders. When I spend my money to make my life easier or better, I spend on? Travel. I spend my life on the road. So a good hotel makes all the difference to me. Yeah. I mean, you got the bug at a quite a young age. So <laughs> yes. have you been back to Fiji or was it? Was oh, it I Fiji? have. Yeah. Yes. I have. I haven't since the exit. Um, it's been probably 10 years now, but I have been back as an adult, which was fun. Wow. My childhood friends recognized me. Oh, no way. Me. Oh, yeah. Wow. I would look, I was such the odd man out. It right. was cool um, at a Fijian school that they, they teased me that they couldn't forget. So having, even though it had been years and years, it was very fun. A blonde white woman, the odd one out. That's, <laughs> that's right. Only when you leave America does that happen. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, when I splurge, I can't Ooh. do without. More hot pink clothing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I always say if it comes in pink, you must indulge. 
Pretty much. That's right. I'm having a daughter soon and uh, I'm looking at, you know, themes for her nursery and clothes and it's Aww. it's a lot of pink. And honestly, it's a little annoying, uh, but there's no avoiding it. I mean, there is there is avoiding I, it, but I, you know, I'm I'm embracing it. That's good. I like that. I totally agree with that. You know, I wear pink all the time and my feeling is we t- we sometimes run away from the, you know, gender stereotyping and I think we should just run right toward it. Yeah. What yeah. I've always done. It's tap into your femininity and that's right. And maybe my my daughter will not like pink at one point that's and that's true. fine. That's right. But right now I make the just I make the decisions. That's <laughs> <laughs> fun. <laughs> All right. Um when I donate, I like to give to blank because um, I typically give to scientific research because I'm a geek and that's what I love. And I think that they struggle often to get funding, um, particularly in areas of women's health. And I'd love to see more breakthroughs. Awesome. And last but not least, I'm Cindy Whitehead. I'm so money because... I own it completely in terms of my financial success. Awesome. Love that. Love you. Cindy, thank you so much. Wishing the pink ceiling so much success in the new year. And if anybody wants to get in touch, the website is thepinkceiling.com. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks, Farnoosh. I appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Cindy Whitehead. And just one more time, if you'd like to learn more about her and The Pink Ceiling, head over to thepinkceiling.com. And Cindy is on Twitter at Cindy Pink CEO. If you couldn't tell, she's obviously someone who is very receptive, very interested in female entrepreneurship. So if you are someone who's listening, interested in growing your company, uh, reach out to Cindy and I w- would think that she would want to hear from you and uh, see how she can help. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download the podcast, the transcript and leave a comment. And if you have a question, click on Ask Farnoosh and leave your question for our Friday episodes. Thank you for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. So money.